I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas about the Elizabethan theater and the people who made it. They were creating a whole new institution. So a lot of the creativity, which is the creativity we no longer are able to see because we've learned to take it for granted, is creating new kinds of economic arrangements, getting people interested in what was totally implausible. We'll do a show if you pay us to come and see it. In London, in the last quarter of the 16th century, something new appeared under the sun, a commercial theater with its own district, its own buildings, and companies of professional actors sustained by paying customers. A new relationship between the stage and its audiences was begun. New kinds of plays were created. One of the first proclamations that came from Elizabeth's court was a proclamation that forbade players from representing matters of state or church. But what happened over the next 50 years was that they ignored or evaded this proclamation over and over and over again. Today on Ideas, we present the first of two shows on this ideologically adventurous theater and the way in which it influenced its audiences. This episode introduces the Elizabethan theater and its many novelties. The second will focus on how the commercial theater developed a new kind of public. The programs continue David Cayley's series on the work of an academic research group called Making Publics, which has been investigating the origins of our modern ideas of the public in Europe between the years 1500 and 1700. Here's David Cayley. On the day before her coronation in 1559, Elizabeth I made a procession through the streets of London. If a man should say well, one observer later wrote, he could not better term the city of London at that time than a stage wherein was showed the wonderful spectacle of a noble-hearted princess towards her most loving people. Elizabeth well knew the value of a dramatic entrance. We princes, she once said, are set on stages in sight and view of all the world. Theatricality pervaded early modern life. It was through pomp and ceremony, ritual gestures and costume displays that the order of things was enacted. But in 1576, when an actor, carpenter, and entrepreneur by the name of James Burbage built the first permanent theater in England since Roman times, something quite unprecedented got underway. Jean Howard is the chair of the Department of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University and a specialist in the theater of Shakespeare and his contemporaries. I think the biggest element of newness was that it was commercial and people paid to go there. And it wasn't a guild theater and it wasn't a religious theater. And playing didn't happen on holidays or at great occasions, it happened perpetually, daily, became part of the diurnal life of the city, and you paid to go there. So it became a kind of proto-capitalist enterprise. And that really did change a lot of things. It changed things in the contents of plays. You know, you weren't telling the morality stories and the mystery cycles. The content was different. Who played was different. I mean, these were men who were professionals. 
wasn't true in the guild theaters. I mean, these were guildsmen who performed in the mysteries and the morality plays. They only were actors three days a year. These are professional companies. Those, those are really enormous differences. The guildsmen, whom Jean Howard refers to here, were members of craft guilds who had performed religious dramas and pageants in cycles or sequences drawn from the Bible. These mystery plays, as they were called, developed and thrived in Europe between the 10th and the 16th centuries. They were banned in England as Catholic following the Reformation, though there are records of isolated performances as late as the 17th century. Paul Yachnan is a Shakespeare scholar, a professor of English at McGill, and the founder of Making Publics, the research project on which I've based this series. The Catholic cycles were community dramas put on by market towns, endorsed by the Catholic Church, and an expression of Catholic community. And they basically went from the creation of the world to the Last Judgment, and they told the story of the Bible. And they were extraordinary. They were performed by the different guilds in the town. Uh, So, for example, the guild that made nails put on the Passion Play, the scene of the crucifixion, partly because it just seemed bright to them, partly because they wanted to advertise the quality (laughs) of of their goods. The bakers did the Last Supper, and one of the stage directions in one of the surviving manuscripts, tells the actors who are performing the Last Supper to throw fresh loaves of bread among the crowd to celebrate the supper, but also to celebrate the goods of the baker's company. So the cycle dramas were these wonderful community performances, and Shakespeare might have seen one of these when he was a boy. The government of England, which was Protestant, suppressed the drama, and they basically eradicated the Catholic drama at the end of the, of the 16th century. And Shakespeare was a beneficiary of this, of course, because it created an opportunity, a business opportunity, uh, for young, entrepreneurial, skilled players and writers to create the commercial theater. And Shakespeare's commercial theater effectively took the place of this community theater. Commercial theater was centered in London, but they toured in the provinces of of course, and they would have gone to the market towns and put on plays like Hamlet. And these are very, very different plays. They were creating a whole new institution, or even you could say a technology that had never existed before. This is Michael Bristol, another Shakespeare scholar and professor of English, now retired at McGill. He's also a colleague of Paul Yachtman's in the Making Publics Research Group. All the crafts had guilds and professional associations that go back for centuries, but not actors. And although theatrical performance goes back into the very distant past, it was always associated with courts and with the household servants, just like the, like the household servants who were also musicians. You know, the aristocratic households, part of your job description as a servant in one of those households would be you get together with the other musicians and you play the violin or something. And they did some theatrical performances for the lord and lady. Sometime in the middle of the 
16th century, some people started to think they could make a living doing this. But there's no guild. So there's no legal sanction for it. There's no charter. So a lot of the creativity, which is the creativity we no longer are able to see because we've learned to take it for granted, is creating new kinds of economic arrangements, getting people interested in artistic or, I say, cultural goods and services as something they could buy with money, getting the authorities to loosen up certain regulations for what kinds of events could happen in what kinds of spaces, loosening up regulations for what would be a lawful way to make your living. So they were great innovators, Shakespeare among them, on the pragmatic and institutional level, not just on the artistic level. The sense of risk-taking and of problem-solving so that you could say, do what was totally implausible, we'll do a show if you pay us to come and see it. The commercial theater, Michael Bristol says, began without plausibility, legal sanction, or a recognized niche in the social order. Nor, adds Paul Yaknin, did players have any right to address the topics that the new theater would take up. People in Shakespeare's time, ordinary people, were excluded by law from participating in public matters. One of the first proclamations that came from Elizabeth's court after she'd come to the throne was a proclamation that forbade players of any kind from representing matters of state or church because, the proclamation says, these are matters that are only to be treated by discreet and wise men, high-ranking members of the aristocracy, members of the court, members of the Privy Council, not by ordinary people like Shakespeare and his playgoers. But what happened over the next 50 years was that they ignored or evaded this proclamation over and over and over again. Theater, unlike more bookish arts, needs a place on the ground. It needs a place where the actors can act and where the audience can stand or sit, where the cannons can be fired off today and tonight and tomorrow again. It can be a temporary space, it can be a permanent space, but it can't just sit there on a library shelf waiting for you to read it. It needs that kind of grounding in a literal sense. That's Stephen Mullaney, a professor of English at the University of Michigan, a member of the Making Publics Research Group, and the author of The Place of the Stage, a book which explores, among other things, the actual place where the new commercial theaters were located. When James Burbage and his men built the theater, for so it was called, in 1576, the site they chose was outside the walls of the old city of London and across the river. The same district soon housed the Curtain, the Rose, the Swan, and eventually in 1599, The Globe, in which Shakespeare had an interest. It was an area, Mullaney says, of rich significance. The medieval city 
had a very fluid boundary despite the prominence of its defensive walls. So throughout Europe and in England, walled cities tended to, in a sense, include, but that's almost the wrong word, a marginal area around them, which wasn't city and wasn't ruled by the same strict regulations, but wasn't outside of city provenance either. It wasn't the country yet. And this was an area that was sometimes uh, fairly extensive, uh, you know, one to three miles in the case of London, that were known as the outlying suburbs and liberties. Areas that were at liberty, one sense that that phrase has, from the full jurisdiction of the sheriff of London. It was an area where law operated differently. It was also the place where people who'd been condemned of capital crimes were taken to be executed. It was a place in the logic of those public executions where the boundary between this life and the next was marked by that death. It was a place where the limits of public authority on that condemned individual were marked out, the moment of death being the moment where the exercise of the law ceases. There were places where certain sorts of extraordinary ambiguity were allowed to exist and almost celebrated that weren't allowed to exist elsewhere. In this boundary zone outside the city had existed monasteries with their eyes ideally on the heavenly city, but also houses of prostitution. There were leprosariums, housing the lepers whom the Middle Ages had considered a kind of living dead, and, as Stephen Mullaney has said, the place of execution. What united these very different uses of London's liberties, in Mullaney's view, was a certain ambiguity. It was a place for things that otherwise had no place within the well-defined categories of everyday life. But by the second half of the 16th century, some of these old uses were fading. Leprosy was dying out. The monasteries had been dissolved. And so a space had opened up. Social forms don't die as quickly as the need that prompted their emergence dies. But new uses for social forms are found very quickly. One of the things that Burbage and those like him were brilliant at is realizing that there was an available social form, a place where anomalous things had long been allowed to exist or been conveyed under force or been, been staged that was no longer as fully in use or occupied as it once had been. The area outside the city walls, the liberties and suburbs of the city, were actually available in some way that was both very literal. You know, there was real estate out there <laughs> that no longer belonged to the church, that could be leased, that new buildings could be put up on, but that still had a lot of the cultural associations attached to it of anomaly in license and uh, things that were complicated, that were too complicated to fit into narrow categories. The theaters that grew up in the liberties of London after 1576 took full advantage of their new situation. There were lots of things in Elizabethan England that were, as Stephen Mullaney says, 
too complicated to fit into neat categories. Christianity had broken into antagonistic pieces. Expanding markets were shattering old social bonds. Received bodies of knowledge were in doubt. The old and the new were in open collision. And in this world in upheaval, the theater became a place where cultural tensions could be, so to say, rehearsed and played out. Gene Howard illustrates this point with reference to Shakespeare's sequence of four plays relating the downfall of King Richard II, the rule of King Henry IV, who overthrows him, and the career of Henry's son, Prince Hal. Hal initially distresses his father by his dissipation in the taverns of Eastcheap and his friendship for the unruly Jack Falstaff, but goes on to become the heroic Henry V. The structure of these plays, Howard says, resembles musical counterpoint. She speaks of their contrapuntal design, because different styles of thought play against each other. I think that's what the best plays of the Renaissance do. They aren't thesis-driven. They think through social structures and conundrums. And I return to this notion of contrapuntal structures, that they give us perspectives that are arrayed against one another sequentially without necessarily coming to resolution. So in the great Henry IV plays, typically, You'll have a scene in the tavern, and you'll be totally into the world of Falstaff and fooling around and drinking a lot and being utterly irresponsible. And then you'll go to the next scene, and you're in the court with Henry IV, and he's terribly worried about rebellion and where's the army going to raise its money. And then you'll move to a scene in Wales where the rebels with Hotspur and Glendower are planning rebellion. And that's a completely different world. It's an old romantic world. Um, not very hard-headed, not very practical at all. This is a world still in communion with spirits. Glendower thinks he can talk to spirits. And these three worlds, I mean, they're completely different. They each have their own set of values, their perspectives. They understand the world differently. And the play just kind of moves us between them, one scene to another. So you have to engage different worlds and weigh their value. How much do we really value the world of the flesh and having fun and not worrying about time? And how much do we value the, the time-driven world of the court or this romantic world of chivalry and poetry in Wales? What's the relative worth of things? You know, Do you want to be a king? And the play poses that as a problem. So these are perpetual thinking machines. I do believe that. And feeling. I mean, the, feeling and thinking are not separated in this stage. That's why structures of feeling are important words for me. They make you feel different things in each of these environments. And what do you want to feel? One of the things that the Henry IV plays think about is kingship. Not all the water in the rough, rude sea can wash the balm from an anointed king, says King Richard II. The breath of worldly men cannot depose the deputy elected by the Lord, but he is deposed by Henry Bolingbroke, Henry IV, on whom the crown will then lie, as he says, uneasily. And finally, there is his son Hal, Henry V, whose youthful adventures in the streets and taverns of London prove to be the foundation for an entirely new style of kingship. 
I think that Shakespeare saw an enormous transformation in understanding kingship as something essentially ordained by God and something made through charisma and theatricality. And he demonstrated that over and over again, the ways in which those two conceptions of kingship can differ. And thought of the theatrical one as representing for good or ill modernity. That's where we were headed. We were headed into a world where people manipulated their publics, tried on roles, rather than inheriting a mantle which was hereditary and blessed by God and was inviolable. And Henry V is the first truly modern king. You know, Richard II thought he was not deposable, thought he was king. He didn't have to be worried about performance. He didn't have to worry about public relations because he was simply an ordained king and he ended up dead, replaced by the much more forceful Bolingbroke. But it's Henry V who can put together the martial prowess of his father with the incredible theatrical and public relations skills that he brings to that job. So he's the first modern king. And how does he become that? He's practicing personas, playing personas, when he is with Falstaff, trying out being a robber at Gad's Hill, and trying out playing at King with Falstaff in the tavern, and playing at talking with every man his own language when he and Francis talk about drinking small beer in the tavern. These are all practicing situations in which he has to adopt a persona in order to be successful. So this is a very fertile period for him in the tavern. That is the place where he learns his theatrical skills. And he gets a lot of them from Falstaff, because Falstaff is a great role player and so forth. So, you know, that's his alternate father who teaches him all those skills. This is very rich for thinking about publics. It absolutely is. Because, I mean, he is, in a way, practicing making publics and, and seeing publicness as an active and transitory process. Continuously remade, requiring up-to-date research, if you like. Exactly. That he has to explore the vernacular world that he's going to rule. Exactly. Uh, It's really interesting. And you see him deploying those in Henry V before the walls of Harfleur, when he doesn't want to have to sack the town, so he makes a fabulous speech about all the things that will happen to the town if he has to sack it. And he persuades all those listening people to open the gates. He stages a fantastic show in front of his court when the tennis balls are brought in from France in the first act, a show of of anger and so forth. And he's already prepared with his bishops that they're going to fund the war in France. He just has to have a public justification for doing it. So he stages a fantastic scene in his court. So you can see him constantly manipulating his publics. That is, the court is one, his common people are another, his enemies are another. They're all groups that have to be brought into being um, to see things in a certain way and to know themselves as a group. And he facilitates that over and over again. Theater, as Gene Howard sees it, thinks through deep-seated issues, like the nature of kingship. It takes Richard II's idea of unassailable divine right 
Henry IV's idea that his mystique depends on his remaining aloof and withdrawn, and Henry V's new ability to persuade and manage his publics, and it plays them out. Theatre, in this sense, provides its society with a space in which it can come to terms with new and unsettling realities. Another thing that the new commercial theatre does is absorb older forms of popular festivity and seasonal celebration. This is a theme that Michael Bristol has developed in his books Carnival and Theatre and Big Time Shakespeare. When he was earning his spurs, Bristol says, the older generation of scholars still saw a hierarchical conception of society as predominating in Shakespeare's works. Bristol began to notice how much the plays incorporated narrative structures derived from popular tradition. Shakespeare's plays, he came to think, were not just informed by the hierarchical worldviews of his aristocratic characters, but also by a popular atmosphere in which fellowship and physical well-being were what counted. Those theaters took over the practices and, let's say, the ethos of the popular festivity, which was a kind of homemade form of popular art and popular spectacle and popular performance. And it was commercialized, it was commodified. And so now common people, instead of creating a participatory spectacle, you buy a ticket and you go and see a popular festive spectacle. But the content of the old medium, the popular festivity, gets taken over into the new medium, at least at first. It's not popular festivity because it's not participatory. It's not homemade. But it has a lot of the look and feel and texture of popular festivity. But now it's being done by professional specialists and the role of the common people is uh, their consumers, their customers. Michael Bristol shares Marshall McLuhan's idea that new media often take their first contents from older, pre-existing forms. Television in its first years became a haven for old vaudeville performers. The new Elizabethan theater, in the same way, took over popular traditions of feast and festival. The dramatic agents, we call them characters, are often modeled on figures that are drawn directly from popular festivity. There was a, a custom for a long time all over Europe of fools and clowns. There were customs all over Europe of staging a kind of ritualized battle uh, of Carnival and Lent. And those schemes are the schemes that uh, Shakespeare grows up with in Stratford. He sees that kind of thing in his community. He sees the celebrations at Christmas time and at the end of the Christmas season, the transition into Lent, the midsummer festivals, they're rural and agricultural. Some of them have f forms and semantic elements that are quite ancient. Some of these old forms are easy enough to recognize in Shakespeare. The debauched Jack Falstaff is plainly a lord of misrule, a figure traditionally appointed at Christmas to preside over a form of revelry called a feast of fools. But Michael Bristol went much farther, arguing, for example, that the noble Othello is in part a carnival buffoon, 
put upon by a trickster in the form of Iago. Even more shocking was the application of the argument to King Lear, rejected by his daughters and forced out onto the heath, the open land, on a stormy night. When they go out on the heath, what do you see out there? You see a clown and a madman and a lord of misrule, which is certainly characterized as Lear. And, you know, it's such a Shakespearean move because when we see the expulsion of the scapegoat, we see it from the point of view of the community that's just expelled the scapegoat. Things are much better now. And Shakespeare says, well, let's turn that one around and let's follow them out into the heath. Let's follow them out of town and see what happens to them out there. And he does that in another way in Merchant of Venice, which is another expulsion of a scapegoat, a hated, reviled scapegoat. But the scapegoat has something to say, and you have to listen to him. So that's, I think, a dimension of Shakespeare that actually exceeds, let's call it, the ethos of popular festivity, which in some ways, and many people, I'm not the only one to point this out, in some ways popular festivity is extremely reactionary. It's a way of maintaining the equilibrium of the small community. And the small community is not necessarily given to much tolerance for difference and for dissidence. On the other hand, you can also say the small community is, is very good at maintaining a kind of solidarity, a supportive solidarity of its members, as long as there's a, a kind of conformity to what the community expects. Well, in Shakespeare, you have that. You have that sense of uh, Gemeinschaft, of the collective the warmth of the community, the warmth of the collectivity, but you also have the idea that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for imagination and creativity and what happens to those oddball figures like Hamlet, like Edmund, who've seen beyond the customary and conventional ways of thinking and feeling. Shakespeare, in Michael Bristol's view, has taken over popular characters and structures, but used them only as templates or starting points for much more nuanced characterizations. Popular festivity is rerun within the drama, but in a new, more self-conscious register. It's not just the communal perspective that is dramatized, but every point of view. It's more edgy in Shakespeare, for sure, it's more edgy, it's more complicated, it's more conflicted. And we see not only this kind of ideal of the reconciliatory community that expels the disruptive figures, but we also see the existential costs to society of that habitual expulsion of difference or intolerance of difference. I think if you really see what's going on in a Shakespeare play, it is not easy on complacency. For me, Shakespeare is the most adult, truthful writer I have ever encountered. He isn't going to make a feel-good story at the end of the day out of anything. He doesn't back away from reality.
You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1, on Sirius Satellite Radio 137, and cbc.ca. Our program is called The Origins of the Modern Public, and it's presented by David Cayley. Incorporation of carnivalesque elements into Shakespeare's theater is an instance, in Gene Howard's view, of the omnivorous appetite of all Elizabethan and Jacobean theater. A year-round professional theater needed material, she says, and it reached opportunistically for whatever was at hand. The theater was constantly drawing on what it needed when it needed it, And Carnival is part, again, of the deep structure of this culture. And in some plays, it is utilized. But I don't think all theater of the period draws on that. It's just um, a particularly rich moment of cultural transformation when all the residual stuff is there to be drawn on, new stuff flooding in to be managed somehow, and you get these plays that are these wonderful collisions of disparate things that somehow are woven into something that feels very fresh and new. If you pull them apart, if you pulled any of Shakespeare's great um, tragedies apart, you could find all these, you will find all these elements as building blocks of the tragedy, somehow made into something, you know, rich and strange. The theater built with the available materials. It incorporated the new and reworked the old. In its highest embodiments, like Shakespeare, it was, as Jean Howard said earlier, a perpetual thinking machine, an aid to navigation among clashing cultures and mentalities. But, of course, Shakespeare, as the summit of this theater's achievement, was hardly typical. With his contrapuntal structures, as Howard names them, he often thinks against the grain of the very stories he is telling. But lots of the theater of the time did somewhat more pedestrian forms of what Howard calls ideological work. All I mean by that is that it naturalizes certain understandings of the world. That's what I mean by ideological work. It tells stories about the world that make us have certain beliefs about the world. And it doesn't necessarily have to be anything very insidious people hear ideology and they think there must be some master plan. It isn't. It's just ways of naturalizing conceptions of the world. And the theater did that all the time in its, I think the deepest way it did it was not through individual plays, but through its generic structures. For example, there's a whole genre called the domestic tragedy. And these plays like Arden of Feversham or Woman Kill with Kindness or the Yorkshire Tragedy, They're always about some crime that happens in a family. Mostly wives kill their husbands, petty treason, servants kill their masters, or a neighbor somehow interferes in your domestic life and then you get an accusation of witchcraft. Now, these sort of naturalize understandings of the family as a site of great endangerment where petty rebellions are possible, and hierarchies have to be maintained, or terrible things, domestic things happen. So they tell stories that naturalize certain understandings of the domus as a, as a place. 
And they're not the only stories the culture tells about domesticity and the home. They're one kind of story, and they go into the cultural imagination, and they get implanted. They have their social effects. They're in competition with other kinds of narratives that come out of prescriptive literature or so forth. History plays, Shakespeare's history plays, are powerful ideological statements about kingship and the dangers of rebellion. And also the dangers of kingship, too. You know, they don't tell a univocal story always. The theater, Jean Howard says, naturalized certain understandings of the world. Cautionary tales about political or domestic insurrection were one way of doing this. Another was by staging what was strange and exotic. The New World, Africa, and Asia were all represented, if often prejudicially, before theater audiences. And closer to home, the theater staged the world of the court and the aristocracy. It sold a simulated access to worlds that had previously disclosed themselves to the gaze of others only on their own terms. Paul Yaknin has dubbed this aspect of what the theater provided Populux. Populux is the theater produces popular versions of deluxe cultural goods, which really does. Shakespeare's company is uh, the Lord Chamberlain's servants, and then when uh, the Queen dies and King James uh, becomes the king, uh, they become the king's servants. They're the liveried performers of the King of England, and they have a venue in the city. And so they're retailing high-end cultural goods, high-end cultural language, even clothes that belong to the aristocracy, which the aristocrats give away to their servants. The servants sell it to the second-hand shops, and the theater picks them up. And Henslow, who had a company, actually had a pawn shop, so he had a direct line to aristocratic clothing. So the theater was offering their paying customers a kind of, not only a kind of version of court life, but the sense that ordinary people could somehow be insiders in court life. And the effect of this was not to challenge the structure of power, but by placing it in a different kind of context, which is a context of retail sales, they made common and made possible a kind of critical attitude toward elite culture. Theater audiences, in Paul Yaknin's view, became more critical by first becoming more familiar with the worlds that were staged for them. And this reduction in deference was just what many of the anti-theatrical writers of the time predicted and feared. The theater was popular, but it also evoked strong opposition. The generally Puritan London authorities were hostile, and many books and sermons invade against playgoing. One crucial ground of this opposition, Stephen Mullaney says, was religious. Protestantism had a fairly strong anti-theatrical animus to it. So a lot of religious authorities felt that even secular theater was too close to some of the sacramental and ceremonial practices of Catholicism, which had just been abandoned. So the Mass is oftentimes described as a form of theater in derogatory terms. A distrust of sensual, sensory experience is part of that anti-theatrical animus, too. Civic authorities felt, I mean, this was a period which was trying to stave off 
an always impending sense of disorder and a period of population explosion. People gathering together in one place uh, alarmed social authorities too. So the city had very different reasons for wanting most forms of popular theater to cease to exist in the community. The stage, according to the anti-theatrical writers of the time, threatened order, mimicked the worst excesses of Catholic priestcraft, and undermined stable social identities. Playing was playing, pretending to be what you are not, and it could only encourage theater audiences to become more like the professional shapeshifters they paid to watch. But interestingly, it was not just the opponents of the theater that made an issue of theatricality. The theater itself was intensely aware of its own artificiality. Hamlet, in one of his soliloquies, asks how a player can work himself up to such a fever pitch over an imaginary grief when he, Hamlet, has so much better cause. So you have an actor addressing an audience while pretending to be alone who comments on the counterfeit passion of another actor within the play. Theater critics call this meta-theatricality, theater drawing attention to itself as theater, and it's rife in the period we're talking about. Jean Howard thinks that one reason is all the religious changes England had been put through. Protestant under Henry VIII, more Protestant under his son Edward, Catholic again under Mary in the 1550s, and only Protestant for good after Elizabeth's accession in 1559. With so many changes of religion in the middle of the century, Catholic, Protestant, Catholic, Protestant, that people became very aware of people pretending to be what they were not in order to pass one way or another. And you'll find in religious polemic of the period constant accusations that the Catholic is veiling his heart, you know, so you don't really know what's going on in there. And the Protestant is lying and putting up a false front. And I think this had a sort of foundational impact on the period, that rapid religious change made it impossible for people to be able to feel that they read people from their, off their faces, that there was a, an interior difference, a difference between an exterior and some kind of unseen interior. And that sets up the possibility for all kinds of theatricality to be thematized on the stage. And there always is thematizing of theatricality on the stage, but I think it was heightened by this intense sense of religious polemic and accusation of false hearts and deceptive fronts that people were putting on. I'm sure other things contributed to it. I think a commercial culture where one's credit increasingly depended on appearances also made it very important for people to keep up an appearance and for there to be a gap between that outward appearance and inward reality. So many London city comedies have one of their plots that focus on a gallant who's actually a poor man and he has no food left to eat and no land left to draw on and yet he has to have a satin coat and he has to walk up and down in St. Paul's and make a certain appearance. And this notion of the empty, the hollow gallant who has 
consumed his land and has nothing left but a satin cloak is a constantly recurring figure. And this has something to do with the commercial and economic changes in the period as well as the religious ones, a sense that people were being making fortunes in a new way and also losing their social status. So you no longer knew who one was simply by their birth and their name. Some people had made enormous fortunes and uh, had come from nowhere. So there was a sense of instability introduced through the changing commercial world as well as the changing religious world. And all this makes tropes of theatricality more pressing. Theatricality was an issue in the theater according to Jean Howard, because it was an issue in a society that had been destabilized by rapid religious and commercial changes. And she believes that this gave the theater a temporarily heightened importance during the period we've been talking about. With the reality of appearances in doubt in the social world, Howard says, the theater was uniquely qualified to address the problem. The Renaissance has the highest proportion I know of plays that are in some way about playing, that have a metatheatrical dimension, and that constantly collapse the barrier between the world beyond the stage and the world on the stage. They collapse it, then they draw the line again. They collapse it, and they draw the line again. You're constantly invited to see a connection and then to think of the stage as having the fourth wall there that you can't see beyond. And Robert Vyman talked about that beautifully don't know if you know his work, but the way in which the Renaissance theater both has what's called a locus and a platea, a, a place that is separate from the world beyond the stage, and then a border that is very porous, where people speak directly to the audience and break the wall. And characters like vices, like Iago in Othello, tread this platea area and they talk to the audience directly and then they come back into the fictional world and he talked about the immense resource this gives to the renaissance theater because it is not like behind a proscenium wall it's not a sealed off theater totally it, it recognizes the porousness between the world of representation and the actual world out there i think renaissance theater was so very supple and self-conscious and effective, uh, partly because of this immense self-consciousness about acting and the world beyond is also being a scene of action. And it isn't ever the same again after the Restoration, when you get the proscenium stage and the closing off of the theater world from the world of the audience. Even the theater buildings change, and the theater then becomes a different thing. Gene Howard's thought that the theater finds a unique vocation during the Renaissance, is shared by Stephen Mullaney. In his book, The Place of the Stage, he has written about this period in England as an interregnum. As a result of the Reformation, the church has lost its hold as a comprehensive disciplinary institution. The state has barely begun to take over this function. Identities are fluid, there is an opening in which the theater can propose itself not just as a representation of this crisis, but as, in a certain sense, its solution. If all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players, as Shakespeare has Jaques say and as you like it, plays are much more than just idle pastimes. They are crucial forms of inquiry and experiment. 
But then, Stephen Mullaney says, the theater's moment passes. It was occupying a space that hadn't existed a little bit before and wouldn't exist in another manifestation of this society in the same way. So it was partly taking advantage of a gap in the fabric of the social order. It's a transition phenomenon because of that. It's, it's not, it can't last forever. The need for it won't last forever. It comes to an artificial end, in a sense, with the uh, English Civil War and the, and the closing of theaters in 1642. But by, you know, when, when, when theater comes back in, the, in, the, in 1660, it's such an entirely different creature. And even though it's very close in historical time, the theater of the 1660s and 1670s, the playwrights, the people, they speak the same language. <laughs> they were born, many of them, back in the, the, what's still the heyday of the late Elizabethan Jacobean theater, the times when that theater was quite vibrant. They don't understand the earlier theater, the 16th and early 17th century theater. Shakespeare is in need of being rewritten for that generation, the Restoration. King Lear is rewritten by name Tate because it's an embarrassment. The good are not supposed to suffer. They're supposed to be rewarded. Theater is supposed to teach a moral lesson. Theater is supposed to profess the harmonies of social existence <laughs> rather than hold the mirror up to you know, nature as it actually exists. So King Lear can't die. Cordelia certainly can't die. In Tate's version, which was the version performed on English stages for the next 150 years until the 19th century, Lear survives, Cordelia survives. Cordelia and Edgar are to be married. <laughs> it's a marriage comedy. <laughs> it's the way things are supposed to work out so that the audience can be properly indoctrinated. It's a proselytizing theater that they have in mind. And it's a very good example because you know, being closer in time doesn't mean they've got more insight into what they're dealing with. Well, they, they do and they don't. They know what's there because they know what they don't like and they know it's wrong by their terms. But the need to rewrite the theater that we find so rewarding to go back to and that we, we still discover new things in is revealing. One of the reasons why contemporary people have found the Elizabethan and Jacobean theater so rewarding in Gene Howard's view, is the similarity between our two eras. Nahum Tate published his rewritten King Lear just five years before Isaac Newton's Principia appeared. The Enlightenment was taking hold. Modernity was assuming a definite and determined shape. But Shakespeare and his contemporaries wrote before anyone knew what this shape would be. They were between worlds, Gene Howard says just as we are today. I think the pre-modern and the post-modern do share certain things. You know, one leads up to enlightenment and all the things we think about as part of modernity, the creation fully of a private sphere, uh, a kind of emphasis on a bourgeois individual as, as sort of at the heart of modern society, a kind of faith in a democratic polity. And we see in the early modern period 
that world coming into being but not formed, which is why these texts seem so haunted by the past, because that world doesn't exist yet, but the other one isn't gone. And I really do think there's something very monumental about this shift from Catholic medieval culture to Reformation, early modern culture. It's one of the greatest shifts that we've ever known. It's accompanied by the rise of capitalism and just enormous epical shifts. And then you get, at the end of the era of modernity, I think an equally important transformation that we don't understand because we're still in the middle of it, when certain ideas about personhood are changing, modes of communication are changing. Politics is completely changing. And there's a certain falling apart of the certainties of the Enlightenment and modernism worldview that just make society crack open in the same way that the early modern society felt fractured and layered by past and present temporalities and ways of seeing things. Today's program has introduced the new world of the playhouse in Elizabethan England. When the origins of the modern public continues, I'll focus on how this theater created a new kind of relationship with its public. On Ideas, you've listened to The Origins of the Modern Public by David Cayley. His series continues next week. It's also available as a podcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Production was by David Cayley, Dave Field, and Bernie Lucht. To find out about upcoming Ideas programs, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The Hourly News is next on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius Satellite Radio.